This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Christopher Golden discusses his new novel, Ararat. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Millett recaps Independent Bookstore Day. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan, also powered by the Pulitzers. Uh, no surprise that uh, uh, we've got some movement there. Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad jumped up from spot 23 to spot 12 wow. on our list. A uh, nice bump in sales yeah. there. And we've got a lot of other movement happening on the list. Um, we've been talking, I think, all winter and spring about waiting for the big books to start popping up and mm-hmm. making waves. And it's finally really happening. Um, we've got a new number two. Uh, which is Star Wars Thrawn by Timothy Zahn. I was so delighted to see this on here. It's been 26 years since Timothy Zahn uh, first introduced the character of Grand Admiral Thrawn in his uh, Star Wars tie-in novels and completely wow. transformed Star Wars fandom. You know, before that, it was just like three movies. And, right, you right. Know, not not such a big deal. And um, he revitalized the franchise, uh, woke all wow. this interest in them. Reportedly, his novels are why George Lucas decided to make more Star Wars movies. No um, and so finally, we get the backstory of Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, this right. character that he was that was introduced in Zahn's heir to the Empire uh, a quarter century ago. Wow. So wow. Um, great story there, and uh, no surprise that it's very high on the list. Uh, sold 15,000 copies its first week out of Fantastic. the gate. Fantastic. Uh, at number four, we have One Perfect Lie by Lisa Scottolina, and uh, this is an entertaining thriller, we say in our review, about an ATF agent who goes undercover as a high school baseball coach, uh, targeting three teenage boys in his investigation of a domestic terrorism plot. Uh, and Scottolina shifts focus among Kurt and each of the boys' mothers, who represent a cross-section of suburban Central Valley, Pennsylvania. And uh, we say that this fast-paced read culminates in a daring chase that would play well on the big screen, hint, hint, and readers may anticipate the outcome of Kurt's budding romance uh, with one of the mothers as eagerly as they do the resolution of the terror plot. Um, the publishers announced that their first printing is 400,000 copies, and uh, so far she's sold a very respectable 13,000 of those. Oh, great. So think that will do very well. Um, Just below it is Two from the Heart, which is a pair of short stories by James Patterson and three different Mm. co-authors. We don't have a review of it yet. It's a a slight little book. It's kind of just there for the fans. I think every writer who uh, has wanted to sell a couple of short stories in one book for, uh, you know, $25 or whatever it is will be uh, pretty 
pretty envious. Right. Yes. Patterson yeah. can pull this off. I mean, amazing. You know, he's he's also at the top of the list. He's still at number one after three weeks, and here he he gets three people to co-write a book with him, uh, except it's two short stories, and they sell it as a hardcover. It's just amazing. He's a he's a phenomenon. Yeah. Not something you see from anybody else. Uh, at number eight, we have The Burial Hour by Jeffrey Deaver. Uh, this is a 13th novel featuring forensic expert Lincoln Rhyme. And uh, it starts off uh, with the abduction of a business executive on Manhattan's Upper East Side by a man calling himself The Composer. We say the book is intriguing if overly complicated and too many twists and unlikely connections may puzzle some readers. And at number 11, we have Song of the Lion by Anne Hillerman. Uh, this is her third Southwestern mystery. We call it uh, Thoughtful. And it starts with a bomb detonating in the parking lot of a high school where a police officer was just looking forward to watching an alumni basketball game in the gym. And we say that seasoned mystery readers may guess the perpetrator before the tense denouement, but the book offers insights on the strength of family ties and the possibilities of redemption after a history of pain. So that's a, a very thoughtful and emotionally rich mystery. And finally, I just wanted to give a nod at number 24 to The Perfect Stranger by Megan Miranda. Uh, we say it is a relentlessly paced and deftly plotted thriller, and fans of Gillian Flynn, Chevy Stevens, and Jennifer McMahon will devour it. Uh, a new beginning. Uh, it begins with a new beginning for a journalist named Leah Stevens after a devastating incident shatters her career in Boston, and she and her former roommate find a second chance in a small Pennsylvania community. Our review says it's an irresistible and riveting page-turner as Miranda weaves several mysteries together, leading to the intricate climax at a feverish, unfaltering pace. Great. So um, definitely worth paying attention to. All right. Well, let's see. Over on nonfiction, I think we've se- we're have we seeing a couple of books coming off the Easter slash Passover holidays. Uh, number two, our highest debut is The True Jesus, Uncovering the Divinity of Christ in the Gospels by David Limbaugh. And uh, in in the uh, copy, it says, The True Jesus goes straight to the unimpeachable source, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and only in the Gospels, uh, says number one New York Times bestseller, David Limbaugh, do we come face to face with the Son of God? So, so that's for um, our, our Christian readers, and then uh, number sixteen for our uh, for those who take basketball uh, as religion. It's Return of the King, LeBron James, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the greatest comeback in NBA history by Brian Windhorst, and it's exactly that. Yeah, so, so, a, a different a different religious book about a different king. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well said, Rose. Uh, and then number 17, uh, we have a starred review, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back by Elizabeth Rosenthal. This is from uh, Penguin Press. Rosenthal, who's the uh, senior writer and former former physician, senior writer at New York Times, uh, provocatively, provocatively analyzes the U.S. healthcare system and finds that it's rigged against you, quote unquote, delving into what's gone wrong as well as how Americans can make it right. She says, given the false choice of your money or your life, Rosenthal argues, it's time for us all to take a stand for the latter. Uh, like I said, this starred review, something very topical uh, and of concern to many. Uh, number 
21. We have Wait, What? and Life's Other Essential Questions by James E. Ryan. Uh, and this is based on the uh, popular commencement address, uh, The Art of Asking and Answering Good Questions by the Dean of Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. So number 24, we have uh, last two books, are a couple of food books, Food 52, Mighty Salads, 60 New Ways to Turn Salad into Dinner, and Make Ahead Lunches Too. Uh, this is by Meryl Stubbs and Amanda Hesser, editors of Food uh, 52. And that's at number 24. And finally, um, uh, a cookbook that is probably bouncing off the Passover uh, holidays, number 25, the starred review, King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world by Joan Nathan. Uh, it's a starred review, and uh, we say this is one of her best books to date. We say Nathan, with her passionate and unceasing search for Jewish cooking traditions, has made an important contribution to Jewish history and culture, and that's what we have. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Christopher Gold. Golden tells us about the supernatural implications of an avalanche in Turkey. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jody Foster, the author of The Schmuck in My Office, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Christopher Golden on the line. His new book is Ararat. Hello, Chris. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So your novel begins with an avalanche in Turkey on Mount Ararat, from which the book takes its name. Tell us about that avalanche and a little bit about what it uncovers. Well, I mean, the idea behind the avalanche, of course, uh, there historically have been uh, lots of uh, earthquakes in that area, and certainly um, the mountains there are no stranger to the odd uh, landslide or avalanche uh, here and there. Um, But in this case, the idea is that five or 6,000 years ago, um, there uh, was another avalanche, and instead of uncovering something, it covered something, which was the Ark, whether it be built by somebody named Noah or not. Uh, it, it uncovers a cave, and when uh, our heroes enter the cave, they discover the walls are actually timber, and that the cave itself is just the buried Ark. And uh, two of your main characters are filmmakers, Adam Hosler and Miriam Karga, uh, if I'm pronouncing their names correctly. Tell us more about them and and how they came to uncover this. Well, the interesting thing for me with Miriam and Adam um, are that uh, they're a very modern couple in every way you can imagine. Um, You know, um, they are uh, engaged to be married. Miriam is a... uh, uh, Muslim-born but atheist Turkish Brit. Uh, Adam is uh, an American Jew, and uh, and they travel the world together and do daring and often stupid things uh, and make videos and documentaries and 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 write books about their adventures. Uh, one of which was called Adam and Eve at the Top of the World, um, and that's the sort of moniker they go by. Uh, and in this case. They're in the process of planning their wedding when they're contacted by a friend in Turkey who tells them about this uh, landslide that's uncovered uh, a cave on the side of the mountain uh, and that there is some uh, whispering going on to suggest that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity to, you know, to look and see if, if they might have found the ark and they end up in this sort of a race to the top, a race to the cave. And uh, whoever gets there first will have the right to, uh, uh, 
you know, to launch the dig, the archaeological uh, uh, excavation that they think is going to be required. Um, and, and that's how we get there. So how do they know or believe that it's the Ark? And maybe describe a little bit about what, what it looks like, uh, the mountain, and what it looks like within the cave. Well, I mean, if you go back and, and do the research, what you'll find is that in those days, what we think of as a ship um, really wouldn't have existed, right? Um, and so the only thing that, that would have existed potentially is something that was put together with, um, uh, you know, I, by, I, should, I should back up and say that unlike some of my writer friends, I'm no archaeologist, but I did, <laughs> uh, I did do some, some research and I got some research uh, from some friends who do work in that field. But um, it, it wouldn't have been the kind of ship that we have in mind. You know, um, it would have been something that was that was put together um, so that the uh, the timbers are sealed, um, uh, you know, almost like with, with pitch, right? Mm. And so, uh, what, what's in there is this sort of uh, you know three decked um, thing that you would imagine, you know, with with uh, with holds that it that would have included animals and grain and, and, and that sort of thing, but it's not certainly not big enough to hold to a very animal on Earth. Um, it does hold something they're not expecting, but it doesn't hold every animal on Earth. Mm. So tell us a little bit about that something that they're not expecting, the, the supernatural element of the thriller. Well, they really, you know, in a weird way, um, well, the straight-up answer to the question is when they get inside the Ark, and this is very early on in the book, so we're not really giving anything away, but when they get inside the Ark, they find a, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, a coffin. And uh, and I don't mean that in any kind of counteractive fashion. It's, uh, right. if, it were Egyptian, if it were Egyptian, we'd call it a sarcophagus. But it's, um, you know, it's this coffin, and inside it they find the ancient withered remains of a humanoid form that happens to have horns. And so, of course, the question becomes, is this some kind of misshapen sort of, uh, you know, proto-human? Is this some, uh, you know, some, some kind of uh, malformation due to disease or, or something? Or um, is this a demon? Uh, and the, you know, the, the apocryphal tales of, of Noah include um, you know, commentary about his encounter with particularly um, with a demon called Shamdom. I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but uh, but the, the the stories are there. Um, you know, this this is stories as old as the biblical stories, um, and so they find this thing there that may or may not be the corpse of a demon, um, and what's phenomenal about it, what what really was part of my inspiration for wanting to do this book at all, is that both the presence of this thing that may be the biblical ark, or the thing that inspired the, the, the legend of the ark, and the presence of this thing that may be a demon, both cause uh, a massive variety of different reactions amongst the cast members. Um, the characters are people from all backgrounds, all different faiths, and all uh, um, uh, you know, all all interests or um, disciplines, and so they they all have their own feelings about um, about what these things might be, and 
whether or not they don't believe, or even if they do, even if all this is is confirming things they've they've believed all along, that alone is is something to change your life. Um, and so, uh, you know, that to me is the the great part about this, the way that both the Ark and this cadaver serve as catalysts, both for conflict and for revelation. So you're really playing around with uh, the distinction between faith, which you have in the absence of evidence, and knowledge that comes with the presence of evidence, and how those can kind of rub up against each other. Well, you know, (laughs) one of my favorite sayings, is uh, that the famous quote, and I can't remember who who it comes from, finally enough, but uh, um, a little information is a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. And what we have here are people with faith of one kind or another, uh, even if they are faithless, that is still its own belief system. Um, And so we have people of one sort of faith or another who are confronted with what I would think of as a little bit of information. Here is this thing, but defining what this thing is and what it means for your personal belief system is uh, is a whole new dilemma. It's one thing to to have faith in a vacuum, you know, to have a sort of spirituality in a vacuum where you're just told, well, this is what we believe, and you either believe it or you don't. But to have a tangible thing that uh, that will impact and you know divert the river of your faith is uh, is really interesting to me. Um, and also, as we start to see more conflict, as we start to see more um, a sort of menace and uh, sinister intent, malice, um, all of these things, the question becomes, uh, is this a natural, you know, um, is this naturally occurring because of these differences of opinion and because of the you know, the, the, the kinds of animosity that always crop up when people of different faiths have different opinions? Or is there a, an actual, you know, malignant influence uh, in the cave with them, in the ark with them? Is this demon exerting some kind of sinister influence? Tell us about the role that science plays in this narrative, um, which is, it's often contrasted with religion, though it doesn't necessarily have to be. One of my favorite characters is is a a priest called Father Cornelius. Um, And what I like about Father Cornelius is that he's a scholar first, you know. He is a priest, um, you know, he, he performs the functions of a priest. But he's a scholar first, and so he's he's the kind of balance between um, science and faith that um, that the book needed. Um, you know, to me, we always say I've been writing from almost my entire career. I think I've written stories about um, you know to one extent or another about the idea that every legend that has lasted as long as many of these things have lasted, every, everything that still lingers thousands of years later, had to have some kind of precursor. There must be some kernel of, of truth to those stories for them to endure. And so to me, that's where I start off when I look at something like this. You know, uh, there must have been a flood. There must have been... Um, 
you know, some kind of uh, story about a guy who built an ark to save his family. Um, I just feel like there had to have been. And yet, there is no way that uh, 3,000 or 4,000 meters above sea level, um, you know, you have uh, an ark. There's no way. Um, anybody who's been searching at the top of Mount Ararat for uh, any kind of uh, vessel um, has to believe completely, wholeheartedly, that God flooded the earth with water that didn't come from the earth. Mm. It had to come from somewhere else, because even if you... So here's the science you were asking for. (laughs) Even if you melted every single uh, piece of ice in this world, um, even if all of the available moisture anywhere was, uh, you know, was, was melted and placed here, we would still not be able to get high enough to put a ship at the top of the mountain. It's impossible. So, so you have to believe, if you're looking up there, you have to believe that, um, that God exists and God was able to bring all of this water that didn't exist before, bring it in, and then make it go away again, like away from Earth. And so, so that, to me, is the interesting challenge. Um, and so, yes, we can do the research and figure out what kind of timber would the ark have been made from, what trees would have been uh, available in the area, where would they have been able to get the timber if they, if they weren't able to get it here. You know, you can, you can study those kinds of questions and, and put that information in, but um, at the end of the day, the characters in this book who come, as I said, from these disparate backgrounds, have to also um, address the idea that they can't challenge this central conceit, right? They have to respect the idea from the beginning, because it's here. I mean, they found it, right? Right. So there, there is conversation about, you know, how did, how did it get up here? And... Um, the the people who don't believe in God or the people who don't believe that that you know it was possible to have a flood to uh, to get this high, they have to start thinking about well I mean, you know it's, it's possible that they that they dragged it up here it's possible that you know and um, and so that's where the science comes in you know science and faith um, are not comfortable partners in most cases and uh, and yet uh, in the real world just like in this book they have to work together. And so how do, uh, what kind of conflicts do Adam and Miriam experience, either together or between themselves? And then also, there's another person, a Ben Walker from the National Science Foundation. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so Adam and Miriam, um, obviously, they have conflicts just by the very nature of their relationship. Um, she has conflicts with her family because um, she is now an atheist um, and because she's uh, going to be marrying uh, a, a Jewish guy. He has sort of less of a conflict in that area, but he also has a conflict in the sense of although he's a young, you know, 21st century guy, um, he, you know, needs to make himself comfortable with the fact that really in their relationship, she's in charge. Um, you know, she's sort of the alpha when it comes to their, their business that they have together. Um, and that becomes more difficult when they're dealing with uh, the Turkish guides that they're working with, uh, one of whom will only respond to Adam. Uh, if Miriam speaks, he answers to Adam uh, as if he, and Adam had been the one to ask the question. 
so they face those challenges. They also have some relationship challenges that come into uh, stark uh, relief in the, in the process of, uh, of going through this story. Uh, and Miriam has a secret that she's been keeping from Adam that is going to interfere uh, quite a bit in their relationship. I don't want to give that away. Um, and so there's a lot going on between them. Um, there's a lot going on in, uh, in the dynamics of the crew that they put together for the dig. Um, and, and then Ben Walker comes in in the sense that there are other characters. There are, you know, monitors from the Turkish government. There's a monitor from the United Nations and, and Walker is sent, uh, and, and allowed to come sort of as an indulgence, uh, for the American government. And he's there as a representative of something called the National Science Foundation. But Walker also is not exactly who he says he is. Um, and, and we learn that as we go forward. Um, but uh, but he's a guy who's had experience with the uncanny in the past, and um, that experience actually you know helps him because he's ready to believe things that are that other people are not quite prepared to believe. Um, so he's he's sort of for forearmed in that sense. We're going to take a quick break. But don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Christopher Golden, author of Ararat. Uh, so you're the author of dozens of books in various genres, as well as other media projects. How did writing start for you? You were talking about this this theme being part of your entire career. Is this what inspired your writing career? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think if you go back to my very first novel, which was called Of Saints and Shadows, um, actually recently re-released. The whole series is being re-released by Journalstone Press. Um, but as Saints and Shadows basically is about the idea that um, um, vampires have always existed um, and that monsters and demons have always existed uh, and that the Roman Catholic Church, here we are again with the Church, the Roman Catholic Church has always known but has kept them in check and sort of conquered them except for vampires, which they hadn't been able to really control. And um, one of the central ideas of this is that the basic rules of vampires are stupid. Um, the idea that vampires could turn into um, rats and bats and wolves and mist, that they could change their entire bodies on a molecular level, and that would be the limit to the things they could transform themselves into, was really <laughs> silly. Like, that's silly, right? Um, and so uh, that always bothered me. And so I, um, I think that was the, the trigger for me looking into the kind of plot that I would want to create for that, my first novel. Um, and part of that was this idea that I feel like, you know, I don't believe in vampires, <laughs> hello, but I do believe that, you know, there are vampire legends uh, of one sort or another and almost every corner in the, of the world. And so for that to be the case, there must have been um, some sort of, um, you know, reasoning for that, you know, some, 
some sort of, um, and again, I'm, I'm speaking nebulously, but obviously we know that there were elements of disease and elements of medical mystery and things like that, that um, you know, that, that caused people to create these legends um, of people coming back from the dead and, and all of this sort of thing. So um, I, I, I always thought, you know, there's got to be a kernel here in all of these various legends. And, and so that kind of thing has always um, appealed to me. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've become more and more interested in, in mining folklore for, um, for those kernels and, and turning them into something. And what's your writing process like? We touched a little bit on, on research. Um, how do you integrate that with writing? You know, um, I've, again, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been writing full-time um, since 1992. And I've, on, I've been on both ends of the spectrum, um, both as a reader and a writer. Um, I, I, I did a book many years ago in which I started to write about um, uh, life sort of behind the Berlin Wall, knowing nothing about what I was talking about. I started writing this chapter and and trying to do it sort of just based on things I'd seen in movies, and I realized that I was being a total fool, and I thought that I was doing it. I went to the library, and I spent a week, you know, just sort of reading books and doing research so that I would be able to do this convincingly. Um, and, uh, you know, as a reader, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've often felt like there are writers who put in too much information, who who are so precious about the time they've spent doing research that they feel like they're uh, betraying themselves or, or that that time must be wasted if they're not including it all. And so over time, you know, I found a balance between taking time to do research but also not wasting my time doing research that I'm not going to use. Um, I also find that um, most of the time people love talking to writers about what they do. Um, if I you know, need information about the Coast Guard, I call the Coast Guard and I find somebody who's willing to talk to me. Um, if, if I, uh, you know, when I was working on Ararat, um, I spent some time online and I found a couple of people who run guided tours, uh, climbing, you know, they're cl climbing guides um, of the mountain and got on the phone with <laughs> with somebody who leads these tours, and, you know, and, and I'm asking the questions not just about Ararat itself, but of course just in general about climbing, about the dangers, about, um, you know, uh, altitude sickness and, and all of the things that come along with it. So um, the goal, as I tell people too when I, when I do this research and I'm talking to them, the goal is, uh, you know, if I'll say to the person I'm talking to about altitude sickness and, and climbing Ararat, I said, look, I don't need to know enough to fool you because that's never going to happen. You've been doing this for, you know, your whole career. I just need to know enough to fool everybody else. <laughs> um, so, so that's the key for me. You know, I don't, um, I, I think that it's, it's about being persuasive. So um, I love that information, that kind of information that's going to make something work. When you are, I mean, as you said, you've you've written on um, various uh, various genres as well as other media projects, and you said you started writing full time in 1992. How, how did it start for you? What what was that jumping off point? 
Um, that was of Saints and Shadows that I was just talking about. I, um, I, uh, geez, I was, I started that book when I was a senior in college and, um, I went to work for Billboard magazine in New York right after graduating. And I was working on that book and I was talking to other writers and editors and going to Nikon, which is a convention that's held in Rhode Island every July, a very small convention by, by purpose, by choice. Um, and I met a number of people there, including Ginger Buchanan, who at the time was an editor at um, Berkeley, at Penguin. And uh, Ginger bought my first two novels, the first two books in that in the Peter Octavian series, which is uh, Fifty Shadows is the first one. So, um, and I've been writing full time ever since. Doing, um, you know, I've been, you know, it's weird because I I feel like I've been really fortunate to be able to do so many different things, um, to scratch so many different itches, um, whether it be, you know, a young adult mystery series. I did 10 books in my body of evidence series, or whether it be, um, Tin Men, which is a science fiction, uh, well, futuristic science fiction thriller that I did two years ago. Um, or, you know, working, doing novels with Mike Mignola, um, and a variety of other people I've collaborated with graphic novels, comics, um, you know, that's been probably the greatest pleasure of, uh, of my career is that I've been able to do such a variety of things that, that all make me smile. <laughs> um, although these things, you know, Ararat sort of is the, uh, um, in, in some ways the great culmination or the drawing together of, uh, of these different things that I, I love. You know, it's got the thriller, it's got the horror, it's got the legend, it's got all of that. Tell us about um, some of your collaborative projects. Um, you mentioned comics and uh, these works with uh, Mike Mignola. Um, obviously, it's going to be very fundamentally different from just sitting alone in your room or uh, going to the library on your own schedule. How do you make those collaborations work? Well, you know, I, I've always said that writing is a solitary process and I'm not a solitary person. Um, and although that's sort of a lie now, I mean, I'm turning 50 this year and I feel like I'm getting more solitary, but, um, but I've had the pleasure of doing projects with so many of my, uh, writer friends who I respect deeply and, um, and also editing a number of anthologies. Um, I don't know how many I've done now, but, uh, uh, which also incorporate writers who I don't know personally, but whose work I, I really respect. Um, so I've been able to do novels with Thomas Nagoski and Tim Levin and, and uh, Amber Benson, and uh, I've gotten, um, I've done a trilogy of graphic novels with Charlene Harris, and, um, you know, it's just, it's it's great when you have the opportunity. To, it, you know, it's funny, because people think, I, 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 I've spoken to people who look at these collaborations and think, oh, well, that's easy. You only have to do half the work. <laughs> and and I, like, I guess I can see why they would think that. But for people who haven't done it, I warn them away. You know, if you don't, if you don't have a writer who's your friend, whose work you admire, that you really feel like you could work well with, don't do it. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, you know, collaboration is actually more work than writing it by yourself. Um, and, uh, and then this year, foolishly, well, uh, last year, foolishly, but um, in June, we'll see the release of a new book called Indigo, 
which is also from St. Martin's. Uh, and Indigo came from me being at the bar at Dragon Con with, uh, with a bunch of other writer friends of mine and saying, you know, it would be great. We should write a round robin novel. <laughs> I have oh, this wow. idea. And I've been wanting to do it for years. And we should write a round robin novel. And so, um, so I, I recruited nine other writers, um, and, and we sold this idea off of a two or three page pitch. Um, and let's see, it's, uh, Jonathan Mayberry, Charlene Harris, Sean McGuire, Kelly Armstrong, Mark Morris, Tim Levin, James A. Moore, um, Kat Richardson, Sherry Priest, me, I I think, I don't have the list in front of me, but I think that's everybody. I don't know if that's 10. Forgive me if I left anybody out. Um, so so the 10 of us basically set out to write a novel together with the idea that each of us would write a cha- uh, two chapters, but no two chapters at a time. So everybody would write a chapter and then go away for you know five chapters or 10 mm-hmm. chapters and come back and write their other chapter. And this was a foolish endeavor. Um, it was, it, the, the, the amount of work that it, it, it meant for me, um, because, of course, I was the idiot who had the idea in the first place, um, and it ended up really being um, almost like I was collaborating with these nine other writers simultaneously. Um, because as the, as the fool who was on the other end, uh, I was the one who was sort of having to make, having to smooth all of the edges and make sure that everything ran together. Um, and, uh, and I think that the end result is really fun. Like, I think that people who, uh, you know, Indigo is a, uh, it's a superhero noir horror dark fantasy novel. Um, and it's a blast. I mean, we had a blast doing it. It's crazy, um, but, but but I would never do it again. <laughs> I mean, and you can you can you can write that one down in stone. <laughs> that is that is never going to happen again. But I hope people enjoy it because we had a blast. Well, that just sounds like such a fun group. We had Charlene and Shannon on the show, and um, and I, I know all the writers you mentioned and uh, what a what a great collection of people to at least to hang out in a bar with and talk about that idea i don't know what actually doing yeah <laughs> exactly well you know it's the classic it seemed like a good idea at the time um but uh but yeah it is it is such a great group of people and all super talented writers and and you know to me that's the you know there there are lots of writers who um who who work who are content in the solitary environment of writing and, and, and aren't wired to, to do it any other way. Um, and then there are writers who are interested in, in coming to play. And that was the whole basis for Indigo was just like, let's get a bunch of these great writers together who are also my friends and, and say, let's, you know, let's have some fun. And, um, I think the end result will be very entertaining for people. So, um, and then the other, the flip side of that is doing anthologies. I actually have an anthology coming out next month from Titan called Dark Cities. I feel like all three of these things are coming out at the same time. Um, and and again, you'll see a lo- you'll see writers that are that are writers who are friends of mine who I respect very much, but then a bunch of writers who I don't know personally at all. Um, that uh, that I just wanted to to have included there. So. Um, I don't know. There's a there's a camaraderie that uh, that is incredibly valuable to me as far as 
giving me the um, the impetus to, to write this, you know, the sort of uh, the spirit that I need to sort of know that I'm not in the trenches by myself. We've been talking with Christopher Golden. You can find his book Ararat in stores right now and all of these others coming down the pike. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot hits the highlights of Independent Bookstore Day. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about Independent Bookstore Day. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello, Jim. Always nice to have you here. So uh, what's the skinny on Independent Bookstore Day? All right. So Independent Bookstore Day is set for uh, this upcoming Saturday, April 29th, and it's the third one they've had. Um, it's been an outgrowth of events that companies and other industries have done, such as the comic, the comic retail market. Uh, the founders of Independent Bookstore Day readily acknowledged they stole the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it is is what it sounds like. It's uh, an attempt to put uh, a focus on independent bookstores on Saturday and to try to drive traffic through various uh, different initiatives. How how are they going to do that? And and how can we, as uh, book readers, participate? <laughs> well, you can go to uh, your local uh, bookstore. There's uh, 458 bookstores wow. in all but two states, uh, Hawaii and Arkansas are the outliers here that really? uh, aren't, aren't, don't have any bookstores signed up for it. Um, so it's pretty good growth in the last since it started uh, only three years ago. But what they do is well, they try to put an emphasis on exclusive items. So this year they have uh, 15 items that you could only get at the stores that are taking part in uh, IPD, as they like to say. Um, and those items are, you could say, somewhat unique. There's a, a literary map of the United States, which is you know not that different, but something a lot of bibliophiles might like. Um, there's an excerpt from Michael Chabon's Moon Glow. But also there's uh, 12 literary-themed condoms with six <laughs> Give Me That Darcy... Jane Austen condoms and six Great Expectation condoms. <laughs> okay, Jim, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> Good. And then, as our writer says, and should those fail to work, there's a Mo Williams onesie emblazoned with the word "read." Um, I, I guess we're going for. Uh, we're going for shock right here. <laughs> we are going for shock. I, I, I do like the idea of the map. I do like that literary map. Yeah, well, there is that. You know, as, as the parent of a toddler who loves books, I, I think that onesie actually sounds pretty, pretty adorable, <laughs> yeah. too. Um, but, you know, uh, along with sex, there's plenty of booze. Um, <laughs> so another of the exclusive items is a drinks recipe book called A Literary Cocktail Party. Mm. Um, and that, of course, has inspired uh, a number of bookstores to hold their own. You guessed it, cocktail parties. 
So they're definitely encouraging people to attend and take part in, in a variety of different ways. So we're, we're really losing the stereotype of the bookish <laughs> nerd who just sits at home alone and, uh, and, and has nothing to do but read and read and read. Right, right. We're, <laughs> we're, we're going for the party bookish nerds. Yeah, we'll go for anybody who likes to step out and go to a community event, shall we say. Um, but, you know, it is part of this overall trend to try to highlight bookstores as, you know, uh, vital parts of the community and to make it not like, like, like we sort of we're hinting at. It's not a stuffy place, you know, at all. It's, you know, yeah. you can find unexpected, unexpected things there. Right. And one of the things we, we've seen as we enter the third year of Independent Bookstore Day is a lot of cities and other regional areas are um, combining together to hold um, what you would call like joint Joint mm-hmm. parties and joint events, like in Indian in Minneapolis and St. Paul, eighteen bookstores have signed up mm. to offer what they're calling a Twin Cities Independent Bookstore Passport. And what you, people probably always have taken part in this: you go to a bookstore and you get your little passport stamped. You go to the next one and you get some sort of discount. Right. And you uh, go to the next one oh, and, and so on and so on. So it's part of the effort to, you know, yeah. to have people visit more than, more than just one store. In addition to um, Minneapolis and St. Paul, we have examples of this happening in Seattle, in Chicago, in the Raleigh-Durham area. Um, so again, it, it's a part of trying to get readers in a region familiar with the, the area's bookstores. And uh, does the IBD uh, organization, the, was the Indie uh, Book Organization, do they have a list of stores you can visit in your state? I'm sure they do, but Good. I don't know where it is. All right. Well, let's, let's assume they do. <laughs> but, but it's also, um, you know, it's an outgrowth. It's overseen by the Northern California Independent Booksellers Association. Oh, wow. It did start a few years ago. There was... Uh, California Independent Bookstore Day and it was right. such a success that they were encouraged enough to branch out to make it nationwide and you know it's actually sort of a somewhat ironic in the fact that at the, while at the same time that it's branching out and it is you know nationwide um, different states and regions are starting their own Independent Bookstore Day we mm-hmm. just had a story uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday that Texas was you know starting Texas Independent Bookstore Day? I think it's sometime in August, and again, you know, it'll be more spotlight. It'll obviously involve only Texas yeah. bookstores, and the highlight will be you know on on different parts of the the bookstores and how they're different and what they have to offer. Great. That, that sounds like a a fun time. Yeah, well, they everybody very encouraged, and you know, an important part of this is that um, sales have always been very, done very well on this right. um, you know it's almost turned into like Christmas in the spring as mm. a couple of booksellers told us great um, and you know, they're also you know counting on kind of not catching in but taking advantage of the movement that booksellers have started ever since the election of being more inclusive um, places right. so as one bookseller told us um, with the climate this year, a lot of bookstores are serving as sanctuaries. I think it will be a perfect storm for sales. So, great. Let's hope she's right. Yep, definitely. Absolutely. So that's coming up on Saturday. Uh, the tw- yeah, the 29th, last Saturday in April is when they've you know, penciled it in. 
All right. Well, I'm putting it on my calendar. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, I hope you find the right store. I, I think <laughs> I think I will because uh, I'm really hoping that Emma Straub's books are magic will be open in Brooklyn by then. Uh, well, actually, yeah. we have that as part of our piece. It's opening two days after that. Ah, and she is actually the author ambassador. That's right for right. Independent Bookstore Day. Well, so she's, I'm, she, she's I'm busy very this excited. weekend. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. It's always good to have you on the show. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Kim Phillips Fine, author of Fear City. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 